Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. Today I'll be interviewing Neil Diochand and Becky Eldridge about their paper, Toward the Development of a Functional Analysis Risk Assessment Decision Tool. Neil Diochand is an assistant professor at the University of Cincinnati, where he teaches applied behavior analysis courses in the master's online distance program. Prior to receiving his doctorate in psychology from Western Michigan University, He was a senior behavior analyst supervising 11 counties in Florida's Suncoast region. Neil has published on a variety of topics including quality assurance of behavioral graphing practices, behavioral health, ethical decision-making tools, and design considerations for treatment centers. In addition to being a reviewer for behavioral journals, He has received grant funding to prototype devices that intuitively deliver music-based feedback to improve exercise. His research focuses on integrating behavioral technology into our devices, regardless of whether they are for physical activity or encouraging ethical decision-making to support the professional practice of behavior analysis. Becky Eldridge is the clinical director of Western Michigan University's Kalamazoo Autism Center. She obtained her master's degree from the University of Chicago, focusing on disability studies, and her PhD in behavior analysis from Western Michigan University under the supervision of Stephanie Peterson. She has worked in homes, clinics, and school settings with professionals and parents from diverse backgrounds to implement effective interventions for children and young adults with autism and other developmental disorders. Her research interests include functional behavior assessment of severe problem behavior, functional communication training for individuals with developmental disabilities, decision-making behavior for behavior analysts, evidence-based training for practitioners in the field of developmental disabilities, telehealth as an evidence-based service modality, and teacher training and collaboration. She is most passionate about teaching and training in community settings to increase capacity for effective behavior analytic intervention. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Neil and Becky about their paper toward the development of a functional analysis risk assessment decision tool. The paper reviews survey data related to practitioners' perceived risk related to functional analyses and it describes an interactive tool that was developed to help people evaluate the risk involved in any given functional analysis. I've known Neil and Becky for quite some time, so this interview was especially fun for me to conduct. I hope you enjoy. 
Uh, hi, Neil and Becky, and welcome to BAPCAST. Hi. Hi. So we're super excited to have you on the show today and to hear about your paper toward the development of a functional analysis risk assessment decision tool. Now, before we jump into the paper, I'm hoping to hear a little bit about your roles and sort of how that involves research and sort of what brought you to this paper. So perhaps we can start with Neil. Can you tell us what your, your current role is and, and how you're doing research in that role? Yeah, um, I am an assistant professor educator, which means my primary focus is on teaching the next generation of behavioral analysts. I'm in an online program at, at the University of Cincinnati. It's an online distance program. And we have students from all over the US and some international as well. And we like to do research kind of as a side note, but also to help with our education experience so that we're actually giving resources that are kind of hitting the press in the journals right now that can also help students in their day-to-day -day practice while meeting their uh, verified course sequences. So is that like the, would you call it like the scientific? scientist practitioner model that you're training the students in? Yeah, exactly. They're learning how to become certified as uh, board certified behavior analysts. Uh, and we want to offer them kind of the research that we're doing as well. Uh, obviously, our primary focus is on educating the students. Uh, we get quite a lot of students in the online programs and uh, less time than the tenure track folk to do research. So it's a 12 month position versus a nine month position. And uh, I get four courses instead of, uh, you know, so I have 12 courses in the year. So it's quite a heavy load. But um, it's really fun because you get to see what students are kind of demanding in the moment from the research as well. They're like, well, what questions do they have? Where are they unsure? And uh, if that, and I, we, I get to supplement some of the information from some of the work I'm doing with both Becky and Steffi and other researchers out there. Nice. So is it you're, you're training them to consume research or your students also then conducting research? Most of them are not actually conducting research, um, but some of them do get interested in that. And so I get to offer that information. But really it is the consumption of the research, being able to apply it in practice and at least know where to find information so that they can engage in that scientist practitioner role. That's awesome. And hopefully BAPCAST will be a good resource to those students and, and others. Now in your role, you've got, you said 12 courses per year, which is a lot for those not in academia. That is a significant course load that Neil's taking on. So how do you maintain productivity in, in doing research like this paper? Well, I, I personally never say that I'm busy. And I usually say that everything I'm doing is easy and that always makes me push to do more. So I actually try to say, oh, uh, that's not that much. Uh, it, a lot of it is busy work. Uh, a lot of it is grading. A lot of it's like, um, you know, trying to find something that I think is going to be beneficial to students at the moment. And then I just have to find the motivation then to pursue it. Nice. And, and Becky, what about yourself? You want to tell us a little bit about your role and, and how you're involved with research? Sure. So um, I'm the clinical director at Western Michigan University's Kalamazoo Autism Center. So um, we are a university uh, autism center and all, all that that is. So um, we're part of the psychology department at Western Michigan University, but our services are all 
um, sustaining the cost to operate the center. So we don't get any funding from the university in terms of um, grants or, or dollars in that way. Um, we obviously get support from the university in terms of an HR department and you know things like that. Um, but our services pay for the clinicians that work here. Um, and it's a really unique center because we kind of have this triad of, of services or deliverables that we provide. And um, one of those is client services. So we provide ABA therapy to individuals ages two to 21. The second uh, leg of our triad is um, training. We're training students in the psychology department on how to be practitioners mm -hmm. in the field. And then the third leg is research. We're really interested in applied research. What is going to best serve our current clients now? Um, and then how can we disseminate what worked for our clients so that other folks at other uh, centers can utilize that information? So it's really a, you know, not even just a research practitioner, but it's a research practitioner educator approach in that we're doing all three. Um, so and with all three, we use all three to inform the, the others. So um, our service really does inform how we train our staff and how we conduct our research. The research is going to inform best practices in training and client services. And then finally, the students at the center really help inform and they're the ones driving a lot of the research uh, that's being conducted here either through theses or dissertations, um, as well as the services that we're providing. So um, it's a really unique uh, opportunity that we have to be able to contribute to the field in that way. It's amazing. And that's, am I understanding this correct in that your center, your bottom line, you're, you're having to maintain that center through billable services, billable hours. Correct. Yep. And doing so, research along with that then, is that, is that correct? Absolutely. So um, right now we're contracted with um, a couple different commercial insurance companies as well as Medicaid here in Michigan. And so, yep, we're trying to maintain um, high quality services for those uh, clients, but also make sure we're training the next generation of providers and doing research all together. Well, that's inspiring. I know a lot of practitioners have a difficult time sort of balancing that. They sometimes have aspirations of working clinical jobs, and then somehow producing research. It's amazing to see, you know, a working model for that. As the clinical director, I'm sure you have uh, an untold amount of responsibility. So how do you personally find the balance in being able to, to work on research in addition to your job? Sure. So I think we do have the benefit of having, you know, being a part of Western. So while I say financially, we are sustaining on our own, um, you know, we have all of the faculty resources at Western Michigan University, which I would be, you know, lost without. So as far as, you know, getting assistance with, you know, research designs or even ideas or students who can dedicate their time outside of their paid hours at the KAC to do that research, we have a highly motivated population that we work with um, being partnered with the university. So for other, you know, autism centers that are interested in doing more research, I would recommend partnering with the university, even if you're not under the umbrella of that university. Um, just getting students in the door provides you a a lot of um, able and willing folks who can help out with the research, whether it's collecting treatment integrity or collecting IOA, or even helping conceptualize some of those research questions. Um, so I, I would say, 
you know, partnering with a university that's either in person or even with a university who's remote. Um, I know a lot of the students who are in programs like Neil's uh, need to do projects and need to um, have some sort of, especially if they're getting a master's uh, degree remotely, they need to have a um, some sort of applied project that shows they can um, manipulate variables and get some experimental control. So um, I think that's a, a big benefit of being part of the university, but I don't think that that would withhold other autism centers from, you know, connecting and, and collaborating with universities. So I think that part makes it quite a bit easier. Um, and then being a nonprofit, I think also helps because we're not um, looking to make our investors a lot of money. And so we're really able to keep our client caseloads fairly low for our BCBAs. So they have the time to take on one or two um, students for supervision, um, as well as, you know, participating in some of those students' research. So um, I think having that ability to have low caseloads helps them diversify some of the things that they're doing day to day. And does that, does that sort of trick, trickle up to you, I suppose, and uh, free up your time to, to work on research as well then? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so part of it is making sure that I don't have, yeah, a caseload of BCBAs that's that's out of control that I can't possibly manage. I'm able to give them support, but also tag in on some of the research projects and then really making sure that um, right now with the current BACB standards, we do have intensive practicum come 2022 that will be going away. But for folks who are looking at that intensive experience that they're looking for, um, you know, having a smaller caseload to be able to give some of your, um, your energies to those other activities, I think are really important. And I think ultimately, as a center, we benefit a lot from it. You know, our clients have really strong outcomes. Um, a lot of kids graduate out of services and go to much less restrictive placements, like, you know, general education settings, things like that. And so, um, in the end, I do think it's a win-win, but um, we do have some parameters in our business model that allow us to do those things. Nice. And as far as this particular research project goes, or, or this, this paper that you wrote together, Neil, you're at University of Cincinnati. Becky, you're in Kalamazoo at the Kalamazoo Autism Center. How did you guys come together with Stephanie Peterson, the third author on this paper, to, to write something like this? So we started this project when we were all at Western Michigan University together. So we had the benefit of being able to use each other soundboards and discuss what's going on in the world. And one of the things we noticed was we heard the term risk assessment, but we, I, we treated it like a noun, like oh, maybe there's actually someone that's done this out there. And uh, Becky did a little digging and we were like, this actually doesn't seem to be as clear as it's uh, worded. You know, like when you look at risk assessment, you assume that there's some kind of physical presence of a thing out there that uh, will be a guide for decision-making. And uh, what we, we, we were in Stephanie's office together and uh, we had the realization that someone needs to do this. And Becky and Stephanie have an extremely uh, expert amount of experience in the functional analysis and treatment doing it remotely and uh, in all sorts of forms of parents and caregiver training and uh, they brought they brought me in to do some of the technical parts to, to kind of build the tool with them but um you know we were astounded that 
we couldn't find this when we looked in the literature. Uh, and with a growing body of research right now, shows that very few people are actually using the functional analysis. And as researchers, we have found that some of the toughest cases, we've had to use the functional analysis to inform our decision-making and treatment. And so either it's a case that people out there are afraid of using it, or they don't know how to use it. And there was a couple surveys by Roscoe uh, Aor, and it, it's not a, they don't know how to do it. They do know how to do it, but there's they, either they're saying there's a lack of administration support, a lack of uh, you know buy-in from parents, or that the, there's too much labor or time or resources devoted to it. But that's not our finding when we do the functional analysis. It can be trained to, you know, it could be trained to RBTs, it could be trained to parents, and it can even be trained remotely. Uh, it's not always a time issue because there's trial-based, there's latency-based, there's other ways of doing it, it, it unabridged from the, um, the analog condition. So we then pursued finding other reasons why people might not be doing the functional analysis, and that led us to the risk assessment. Nice. We thought maybe it's that. You know, we don't have a good way to, to assess risk. So looking at, sounds like when you guys were all at Western Michigan University, looking at what are some of the inherent risks with, with functional analyses, functional analyses, for those who don't know, is sort of the standard or the gold standard of assessment of problem behavior for behavior analysts. And looking at some of the barriers that may prevent people from conducting functional analyses, potentially some of those risks. And so I know you guys have a sort of a series of papers. You're, you've already maybe published one or two aside from this paper and this paper. So what exactly is this paper sort of doing in that domain? And where does that fall in some of the other work you guys have done? So I think, um, you know, like Neil said, uh, we are very interested in why uh, practitioners aren't using functional analysis. And based on some of those initial surveys in 2015 that he mentioned, Roscoe and then Oliver Pratt and Norman, um, they did find that you know folks were trained in how to conduct functional analysis. So it wasn't a lack of training. So there is this other question. And um, I think through my experience as a PhD student at Western and now as a clinical director, um, a lot of it when we see junior behavior analysts is that they might be trained how to do something, but they don't know where and when to do it. And so a lot of the clinical decision-making that behavior analysts engage in is that where and when and taking some of those contextual factors into consideration when they're doing different assessments or different you know, treatment selection. And so we do have a history in our field of other um, papers that have been published with different decision trees on them that might help guide like, oh, what type of measurement do I need to use in this situation? Or if I have a child who's engaging in, you know, escape maintain problem behavior, what types of uh, treatments might be most effective in this context? And um, when we were kind of thinking about, you know, people don't know where and when to do an FA and under what contextual factors you would do one, um, this whole risk assessment came up, but as we were developing it, we just could not land on a unilateral decision tree. It was just something that was, there's too many factors involved and each factor would affect the other factors and make them more or less significant. And so um, it's kind of where this thing grew is just through this 
meeting, I think Neil or Stephanie had a piece of paper that were kind of scratching out what a risk assessment might look like and trying to draw a decision tree with a bunch of arrows and um, just couldn't, couldn't do it um, based on our own clinical experience. So that's kind of where the, the impetus for the risk assessment um, really came. And when we started developing it, as you're developing anything, you know, whether we're assessing a child with problem behavior or a skill acquisition or a student who's failing our class, we need to like really look back at the data and figure out why. Mm. Um, and so that's where we started doing, looking through the literature first, we did our record review. Um, and then the next step was um, doing some indirect uh, interviews in the form of surveys. So mm. that's kind of, um, I don't know, Neil, if you wanna kind of summarize the survey research from this paper. Well, before we jump into that, yeah, Sorry. Think, no, no, this is great. I, I love the, the approach that you guys took to this, which was we know that people are, for the most part, at least being oriented and potentially trained to do things like functional analyses. But if you, even without research, and you guys' research, of course, confirmed this, but it in some of the other surveys you guys were talking about, look at this as well, but we've you talk to practitioners, people aren't doing these, people aren't doing functional analyses. And why is that? It's not simply the training. It's not just the training that's, that's causing people not to do them. There are other factors here. One of the factors you guys pointing out, I think really, really interestingly is the, the inherent risks of functional analyses, right? If we're going to be potentially purposely evoking problem behavior, there are risks and there are a number of risks uh, beyond that, of course, but it can make people intimidated or, or potentially hesitant to do something like this. And so is it my understanding that this particular paper you did the first, you did the, the survey, which we'll, we'll ask Neil to talk about in a second. The, is there a tool development aspect of this, right? And then the a third section, which is about the expert review that you had done. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So yeah, we developed the risk assessment um, kind of simultaneously with doing the survey and getting the results from that and then made sure that our risk assessment addressed some of the need in the field that people were asking for. Um, and then, yep, the third step was setting it out for expert review to make sure that it wasn't just Neil, Becky and Stephanie's <laughs> clinical decision model, but that uh, we had some consensus in the field that this is how other people would decide how to do or what to do. Nice. And what did that, what did the survey look like then? Well, just, I just want to add as well to um, another thing that we found when we developed the tool um, were that the data on functionalities are scattered in the literature. And so all these great recommendations that we might be aware of uh, might not be as easily accessible to um, some of the practitioners out there on how to reduce risk. So that was the other like research to practice gap we wanted to fill in. Um, so even if the results of the survey were, you know, like, oh, we understand that, you know, there's no need for a risk assessment, you know, we understand what it is. There's still that research to practice gap. Gotcha. Um, so you're saying in, in terms of that, that the deficit that you identified in the research in terms of the inconsistencies, you're saying that the inconsistency is about how much people do the FAs or the FA results themselves, like are FAs effective? It, it's more that 
there's so much information on functional analyses. There's like, we found well over, there could be, there's well over hundreds and hundreds of articles on functional analyses, but they're in like over like 30 or so journals. And so our, our tool actually used 21 journals mm. and about 83 references. We used to try to use a seminal, as many seminal articles as possible. Uh, but if you are, you know, new Bay Round list, knowing where to look is going to be a challenge. And I think when Becky and I were in the room with Stephanie, we would ask a question like, who did this for uh, reducing risk in this manner? And uh, Stephanie would give some names. And then the next week we would ask you know, similar questions and we would find that there were even more papers that we had to go up and kind of scourge the uh, archives to get that information. Right, it's a lot to take on for any behavior analyst, much less uh, maybe a graduate student or someone newer to the field, right? And where even to start when we're talking about even just looking at the procedures, right? Aside from risk, but like what types of FAs exist? Are there latency-based, trial-based, right? Um, you know, standard brief, you know, there's so many different variations of yep. FAs and they're spread across so many different Journals, Singles, you know, synthesized, right? Yeah, right. So, so many different types of FAs. And you guys are honing specifically on in on some of the specific risk, right? And so targeting yeah. first the survey, to, uh, is it to get an idea of the severity of the problem or what did your sur survey? Well, here, here's the issue with surveys. We, we looked at the survey data that was already uh, like gathered on the use of functional analysis. And when you ask a loaded questions, um, you might get uh, specific answers. So mm -hmm. it, it really, it is an art to doing surveys. You have to ask specific questions that allow like uh, some qualitative information in addition to the yes, no, you know, uh, discrete answers. So we did offer opportunities to find out like, have you, ha is there a risk assessment out there? A lot of people um, said no. And mm -hmm. a lot of people, like it's 95% people have done functional analysis before but uh, a good number uh, agreed that there isn't a consistent way uh, to use a risk assessment so um, and a lot of them believe that a lot of people aren't conducting functional analyses because they um, they don't have a good guide on how to conduct the functional analysis. So is this survey sent to people who had conducted functional analyses or who was the who were the people who were completing the survey? So we recruited BCBAs and BCBADs, and we assumed those individuals were the ones who were most likely to uh, be the guide to conducting a functional analysis. And we asked them experience, you know, in the field, their age range, kind of demographic data, um, and then we asked them some questions about their exposure to functional analysis. So have you analyzed data uh, in the FA? 95% um, said yes. Have you implemented treatment based on uh, FA results? 90% said yes. Um, have you assisted or observed an FA? And again, a lot of people are saying they have experience with an FA. It goes down in terms of percentages when we ask them if they designed or supervised FAs. But well, we had a similar finding to the previous surveys that people do have exposure. They do have training with it. 83% uh, of them had heard of the term risk assessment, mm. and, but 95% of them believe that there was a need for a risk assessment tool that determines wow. the risk of conducting a functional analysis and offers a way to reduce 
close to the FA. And that, you know, we wanted that result. Let, let's not be, you know, uh, <laughs> we, we, but we had, it's a gut feeling from the outset that this was a need educationally or otherwise that we needed to provide a tool. And sometimes um, in a research to practice gap, you don't need to confirm everything to say that there is a need. And I think cultural diversity is a good example of this. Like when people say like, oh, we don't need social justice, uh, we don't need some other terminology or, you know, well, it seems it, just because there isn't data on it mm. currently doesn't mean that there isn't a need. It just means that the data may not have been gathered. Right. So. You know, and where you need- guys saw a need or felt a need or experienced a need to some capacity you said, hey, instead of, you know, resting on that assumption and, and trying to write papers, focus on that, you said, hey, let's actually do a survey and let's begin to collect some of that data. And you had, correct me if I'm wrong here, but 664 total participants, That's right. 534 BCBAs, 130 BCBADs. So this isn't you and, you know, your 12 buddies or, or colleagues that you work with. This is a substantial relatively substantial um, sample size for a survey of this nature. I mean, so this is good data, right? Reasonable, trustworthy yeah, data good, that we're looking Good sample. At yeah. Yeah. Uh, and how, how do you, I guess to kind of back up a little bit and then dive specifically into the survey, just for, just so that the listeners know, how do, how do you even get a survey out to that many behavior analysts? We had to use the BACB, uh, email listserv so we pay the bca to um, blast people on their registry uh, to see if they would be willing to participate in a irb approved uh, study which would offer them some questions about functional analyses and the risk assessment i think some people don't know that that might that tool exists but um you can individually email every single search the ACB's website that would take you hours, maybe days uh, to do that, but you can pay a fee for research um, in which you pay the BACB and they essentially do that for you. Um, When people become uh, certificates, they can check several things on their application, whether they're open to receiving emails for research, such as surveys, and then also whether they're open to supervising others. And so those things are listed on their certificate profile. And um, it's actually really handy. And and sometimes, um, especially if it's like a dissertation or a thesis, a lot of times the BACB will waive the fee Mm. um, because they really do want to promote dissemination Um, in our field. And they really do want researchers to be utilizing behavior analysts as a subject pool to figure out what's going to best serve the field in the future. So they have some buy-in on these uh, survey results as well, because it directly benefits the population that they certify. That makes sense. And it's super, super helpful information to have. I mean, I'm excited to talk about the risk assessment tool, of course, but just looking at the different results from your survey and some of these these really really fascinating statistics that were were produced by the survey um, that we'll go over in a moment but it's just it's fascinating some of the things you can find just through survey research and, and like you're I think using this this survey to do orient you ultimately toward strategies or, or interventions to address some of the the problems that, that plague our field and so 
fascinating survey that you've got here. And thanks for explaining how it was conducted. So looking at some of the specific stats, which by the way, for the listeners, uh, if you if you look at the article, they'll it'll probably be a little bit easier to look at some of the, the stats available. The article, of course, is linked in the show notes. But Neil, you were saying ultimately that most of these people had experienced FAs to some capacity, trained, participated, analyzed data, et cetera, but that many of them weren't conducting FAs currently and that many of them ultimately decide or suggested that there was a need for a risk assessment tool. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. They um, said that there would be uh, that a tool that evaluates how and when it's safe to conduct an FA would be extremely valuable. So on, in table, um, table two, 96.2%, 639 of the 664 said, they would want a tool in a discrete yes, no. Would you want a tool that helps you evaluate when it's safe? And so what we're finding is that the risk assessment was a process that was vague and probably done by FA, uh, by BCJs in different manners. Hmm. And so we did want some way to, to standardize or offer some guidelines on when to conduct a risk, risk assessment. And we weren't aiming to say, do a functional analysis every time. We wanted something to say, uh, when would it be recommended and way, ways to reduce risk? So if the FA was the right treatment course, or right assessment course, that they had the option to choose it. So that was what we we're going for. Or we wanted to provide alternatives that were also uh, experimental as described in, in the literature, such as the um, choice assessments or um, other, other types of, um, you know, you know, uh, what is it, the structural assessment? Is that right, Becky? Yep. Uh, the, yeah, concurrent operands, or you could do a choice assessment. But I think um, the other thing on that survey results on table two that, you know, is super interesting to me is just that, um, you know, we talk a lot about in our ethics code doing risk benefit analyses with our clients before implementing any assessment or treatment procedures and really making sure that um, we, we do no harm as the field. And we're a fairly young field in the sense that we haven't been along, you know, around as long as the American Psychological Association or even the American Medical Association. And so right. our ethical standards are growing and developing, but our survey um, only five, I think it's five point eight percent of our respondents so 35 people said that they had done a formal risk assessment prior to conducting FAs and so to me as a practitioner that's a huge red flag that we have people conducting FAs not doing a risk assessment and so um, you know when we talk about the risk involved with with functional analyses that we do you know see a temporary increase in either the frequency or the severity of behavior um, people aren't doing a risk assessment that's huge and so not only do we need to you know train our practitioners to be more successful we also have an obligation to protect the public and to be providing um, a tool that allows practitioners to use the most effective assessment in the safest way Right. So there's really multiple layers of the problem. Not only are potentially some people not doing FAs potentially related to risk, but there are many people doing FAs potentially without considering or at least seriously assessing for risk, which is problematic considering that, again, most some of your population, 41.5% looks like 
said that FAs are inherently risky, right? And certainly um, experts, I think, would, would primarily agree with that as well. So very cool concept of a, of a project here. So can you tell us a little bit about the risk assessment? What sort of is involved with something like that? Some of the components you're looking at there. So we ended up creating a tool that had four categories. Um, and as Becky mentioned, we didn't think that a, a simple like tree diagram would be sufficient. We thought that if your clinical experience is lacking, well, then if we're choosing an environment and support staff and behavior intensity uh, of the actual topography of the problem behavior, then that could interlock with all the other domains. So if someone is a, a beginner and they have even a non-challenging behavior, that should increase the risk of working with a challenging behavior because of their lack of experience. Mm. So we, we decided that um, and some of this was, you know, some of the art to the science, right? But we did use an expert review to ensure that it, again, wasn't just our opinion. When you have someone uh, in an environment that has break, break, breakable objects, even a lower intensity behavior could be problematic because you could have, then have uh, objects that can be used as weapons or cause inadvertent injury to a person. And if you don't have support staff available, to engage in response blocking or um, to meet a challenging behavior that uh, could go to a high escalation, all those factors could interlock together to create a, a scenario that is more highly risky than others. Mm. But um, we ended up having those four domains. So clinical experience is our first one, uh, behavior intensity as one of the other ones that was very high on, on, the, on the list because those two we considered as being um, some of the most impactful. If those two were at the highest point, then that could be uh, a compounded effect. If someone has very little experience and the behavioral intensity is it's very high, so it causes blood, you know, uh, it's very difficult to block, it's very intense, then those two factors should combine together in a synergistic way. Right. Um, and the and other then, two? environment so the location of where you're conducting the fa and then the support staff so who do you have available um do you have trained rbts do you have one staff available do you have a doctor or watching to make sure that there is uh, a medical um uh, termination criteria um for some cases uh, that's kind of what you need if you're in a lockdown facility um not everyone is going to have that level of oversight but if you have something that can cause tissue damage or uh, it's very difficult to block, uh, you're probably gonna wanna have that level of oversight. That makes sense. And so, and you were saying that ultimately, it's not as if this can be as simple as a decision tree where, you know, uh, if, if you have clinical experience, you go down this path, and if you don't, you go down the other path. It's, it's a little bit more intricate than that, and they all sort of interact with each other a little bit more than that. So how does, how, did, how is that calculated exactly? What does that process look like in, in coming up with the, the risk? Yeah, that, so, that's the uh, question. From the, the art side of it, or the, you know, Stephanie and I and Neil drew out on a piece of paper and we were thinking um, like radio dials. So just to mm -hmm. give listeners an analogy, like you could turn the volume all the way up, but the treble in the bass might be low. 
Um, and so we were thinking of these four factors or these four domains as being you could turn the dial up or down um, and it would change the sound output or the mm -hmm. risk output. And so Stephanie and I, you know, kind of wrote out like there were going to be six levels within each factor and handed it to Neil and <laughs> he did all the magic um, on the, the actual, you know, you know, he's talking about behavioral intensity and clinical expertise being the two that are weighted heavier than the other two factors. And so um, he's really the magic behind the tool. Um, and we just got to play with it and say like, oh, that sounds a bit off. We need to change this a little bit. And then he had to figure out the, I'll let him explain the algorithms behind it more, but we had the fun part in my opinion. You and Stephanie were primarily looking at um, what are the big categories? And then in terms of weighting it and actually somehow creating, uh, creating a computation, sort of handed it over to Neil, who I imagine did that in a computer program. Yes, that's correct. So we actually ended up using Excel because from the work on graphing, a lot of behavior analysts in the field actually use Excel for graphing their single subject data. Hmm. So I was like, what's an accessible resource that also allows me to use some little visual basic programming um, and some uh, macros so that we can actually achieve a tool that Becky and Stephanie, um, you know, can, can envision. And so we, had, we created the radio buttons. Uh, we had, you know, one to six, like Becky said, uh, six being the like either the no experience in the clinical uh, ex experience section to one being five or more years experience conducting FAs. And we went through many renditions. Like in our first version, we tried to actually quantify the number of FAs conducted. And so Stephanie and Becky have conducted numerous. They said, I've lost count. You know, like I can't actually say how many I, I've done over a hundred or I've done over a thousand. I don't know, but I know how many years. So we, we there, that art to the science again was what is a way we can create radio buttons that someone can actually easily answer without it being like too challenging. Wow. And we put in like caveats, like, so yeah, someone's got one year experience. Another person's got one year experience, but they may not be equal experiences. So we have to put in like in the descriptors, thinking about all these factors which of the below captures your best experience? But no, doing a postdoc for a year might be, you know, like three, four years. So try to best answer this question uh, to reflect your level of experience, uh, giving in mind that this tool is just a tool. We, it's not going to be perfect. It's a, it's a way to ascertain some level of risk, standardize some sections, but it's not going to be perfect. So we always put the caveat, this is educational because we have yet to validate whether this actually changes someone's decision-making in the field. Um, but so so it, we treat it as an educational tool first and talking about where this paper will go, we're hoping to validate whether this tool actually uh, helps people change whether they were to conduct a functional analysis or change how they would conduct a functional analysis at a later date. So that is some, a direction that this tool is going. Um, but how it does the calculations is basically it starts summing up uh, multiple different ways of how someone could respond. So if someone responds high on clinical experience and behavior intensity, it will have a compounding effect and increase the risk score. And and then that will reflect in four domain four like categories below: high risk, 
substantial risk and moderate risk and slight risk. And it will move the kind of uh, dial, as Becky mentioned, to one of those categories. And if all four are high, it has a even more compounding effect. If it's support staff and uh, environment together that are high, then there will be a compounding effect, but a little bit less. It's hard to like describe it, <laughs> yeah. but there are multiple calculations going on and it just takes the highest of those calculations and puts it basically in uh, zero to 48 is what the numbers are working out in the background. And if they allot in a certain direction, they'll be put in high risk. If not, they'll be moved to substantial risk. And then we, like if it's in the high risk category, we give the advice, do not proceed, seek consultation, supervision and or additional resources. And then they can go to the risk reduction tab and have a look at what is highlighted from the literature and then redo the risk evaluation and see if they can reduce their risk score to see if they can move to a position where they've alleviated some of the concerns. That's amazing. Reduction. Wow. And is this the tool itself is available with the article or where can people actually find the specific tools in the article? Yeah. Yes, it, yes, it's available. You can get it from the behavior analysis and practice website. It should be there should be a link in the paper to supplemental uh, materials, and it's also on our research gate uh, for Becky and I and Stephanie, where you can download the Mac version of the tool for Excel, the Windows version of the tool for Excel, and a tablet or phone version of the tool for Excel. But each one has like different features that are allowed based on different versions. So depending on if you have Excel 2010, you might not be able to access some of the uh, capabilities. Like mm. Mac codes differently uh, compared to Windows. So it actually blocks some of the macros or some of the visual basics. So it doesn't always offer, like there's a help menu that I created, but only the Windows and tablet versions are really going to get mm. that help menu uh, compared to the Mac users that have more virus protection, but then they can't have some of the uh, functional aspects of like a, a visual basic embedded tool. Well, I think the tool itself sounds amazing. And I think I highly encourage the listeners to check that out to sort of give yourself an idea of everything that's involved with something like that. Because ultimately, you guys are taking something that's an extremely complicated analysis, really, and providing practitioners a way of, of really guiding themselves through it. And as you said, it's it's educational. It's not necessarily a completely validated process at this point, but it's pointing you to very, very important variables that you need to consider. And I think about myself as, a, as an assistant professor, I teach ethics, I teach assessment. And one of the things we talk about is, you know, think about your competency level. Think about the, I mean, we do, we talk about the risk of something like that, but how, how are students who are leaving the program or people who are out there have already gone through programs, how are they actually guiding themselves through those things and evaluating? Where is my, how do I evaluate my clinical experience? Well, that's a, that's a factor in your guys' assessment tool. Or how do I evaluate the, the risk? Is it, is it just related to the danger of the behavior? And all these factors, it can be a lot to not only really attune to or think about or sort of include in your own analysis, but the nuances of how they combine together. And so I think this tool is amazing. Now, in terms of, of beginning the process toward validation, I know the, the sort of third section of this paper focuses in on expert 
input or evaluation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, we actually sent it to um, 12, well, I think originally 20, but we had 12 um, experts in the field who responded. And um, as Neil mentioned, we you know, really selected seminal articles in FA. Um, and so we have 83 different FA articles that are included in the tool. Um, and a lot of the experts that we sent the tool to were authors of some of those seminal articles. And so we sent it out to people who not only conduct FA regularly as part of their practice, but also are teaching others how to um, conduct functional behavior assessments, including functional analyses. So we sent the tool out um, to those experts along with um, a second survey that had different um, client vignettes or scenarios that, hey, you have this client who's presenting this, you're a new BCBA and you have a nurse on staff, you know, like would you or would you not conduct the FA? And so we actually asked the experts to um, input the different combinations that would be associated with that client and then decide whether or not we had, our dial had selected the right amount of risk and if the recommendations to reduce risk were along the lines of things that they would do in their practice. Um, wow. And so it was an open-ended survey in the sense that um, we did have some closed survey questions like, you know, needs to be higher, needs to be lower is just right. But then we had open-ended text boxes where people could say why it wasn't right or why it needed to be higher. And I will tell you, the experts did two rounds of review with us where we got it, got the results back, made changes to the tool and then sent it back to them. And we just have to thank them. They spent a tremendous amount of time um, doing that for us and really for the field to help, help this tool. And um, by our second round, we got mostly it's just right. It's nice. just right. You hit the nail on the head. Um, and so that felt really good in, in the sense that it's kind of a, a pilot validation in turn, in that sense. Um, we're validating that we think the same way other people think, but now we need to do another layer of validation to see if this tool actually does change clinical decision-making behavior. Cause you know, we talk a lot with, with experts, I think in any field, um, in behavior analysis, we talk about rule-governed behavior versus contingency-shaped behavior. And right. I think experts tend to be more contingency-shaped because they have the experience that has guided them to do this or that or the next thing. Whereas right. novices in our field, they're relying on rules alone. And so we really need to be providing those rules that can help them until they have enough experience under their belt that they can say, well, I tried a trial-based, it was not effective, next time I'm gonna do latency-based or something else. Um, and so I think that um, that third round of expert review really helped us know that this is how we've been trained, but this is also how other experts are training their students and, and future practitioners. That's a cool analysis. The the role governed behavior versus contingency shaped behavior. And, you know, one of the beauties of role governed behavior is it supplements and expedites learning that is unnecessary to experience through contingency shaped behavior, right? I don't need to touch the stove to know that it's hot. Ideally, we'd like to use that, you know, analogy with, with FAs, right? I don't want to have to fail doing an FA, a potentially high stakes functional analysis with one of my clients. I can I can avoid the need for that by following rules that are set out by experts. 
And so you said once the experts reviewed on the second round, you're seeing quite a bit of agreement with, with the experts. Is that right? Yep. And then, yes, we did. And then the ones that didn't, and we didn't, so anytime you're publishing a paper, it's like you collect so much data and you really have to select what all you're going to include in the paper. Right. Um, we kind of went back and forth on whether we should include, you know, all of the quantitative data we got from the experts and, and actually decided against it and tried to just summarize their comments. Um, because we wanted the bulk of the paper to be focused on the other data that we collected. But I think that, um, yes. Yeah. So in answer to your question by the second round, we got, you know, mostly agreement amongst the experts and those that didn't agree were pretty minor thing. Well, minor and major. Um, some of the things were the wording. So we went back and forth on, um, minimal, like the, so the final category or this lowest risk category we call slight risk. Initially, I think we had no risk, then we had minimal risk, then we had some risk. And all of those terms are somewhat subjective, but they mean different things to different people. And, right. you know, we landed on, there's always a risk. There's never not a risk with FA. So we can't say no risk. That makes and so I don't remember in what conversation we, we got slight as being our, our lowest category of risk. Um, but that was in part a lot because the reviewers disagreed on those things. Um, and then we had one reviewer who gave us a tremendous amount of feedback on like specific wording um, and things like that. And so um, we went back and forth. I think Neil went back and forth with that reviewer two or three times before we got the final final A-OK on it. <laughs> yeah, and, and the thing that, that's so hard about trying to put this into a tool is like, it's looking at almost, when we look at behavior intensity, how do you like evaluate hiker? How do you evaluate elopement? You know, have the typical hard to block. Yeah, that might capture elopement, uh, but like using tissue damage as an example is not gonna do it. So. We added a lot of like provisos, like, you know, thinking about these factors, which below captures the best one out of these, you know, so consider ability to block it, consider immediate risk to the person, you know, like elopement might not be risky, but if you're conducting it outside near a row, yes, it is risky. Uh -huh. So uh, we also found from the survey sent out to the 664, that 20% wanted validity recommendations incorporated with the tool. Mm. And fortunately, because we were coming through the literature, we were able to add that as well to one of the tabs. So we have essentially, you know, four main tabs, if you skip the about the tool tab. So we have the actual tool, the risk evaluation tab, uh, that if you click a button, anything three, four, five on the high end of the, of the risk, so four, five, six, actually, sorry, will highlight a tab in the risk of reduction tab. And so for example, if you say, hey, uh, there's a risk to behavior intensity, and then that will highlight potentially ways to reduce intensity. Well, maybe using NCR, uh, non-contingent reinforcement ongoing with the FA, or consider not proceeding and doing an FA. Even if that sounds very basic, we offer that as a recommendation, or consider the alternatives. So we talked about the structural assessment, uh, structural analysis, reinforcer assessment, modified choice analysis, which are experimental, but they're not functional analyses. So, right. uh, you know, they, they are options. If you can do a modified choice, uh, that 
potentially it's going to have less of an escalation. Or I, we offer alternatives to the analog using a latency trial-based, you know, single function if you just want to do a confirmation of a, a function you already have a good inkling on. So not only are you helping people identify risk, but you're giving them sort of options or ideas to move forward, right? It's not just, hey, you can't do, do an, an FA, FA every time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, or do an FA every time, or you can't do an FA every time, good luck. You're giving actual suggestions on to move or suggestions to move forward, basically. And we, we considered also validity interlocks with the actual risk. Because if you have to redo an FA, you're then exposing the person to, you know, intermittent reinforcement of challenging behavior because you're probably going from treatment, you know, assessment treatment uh, back to assessment. So you're right. leading to, to that problematic uh, issue. But then you're also exposing them to increases in, in the challenging behavior. And so the goal is to minimize that and also get to accurate data so you don't have to repeat doing a function analysis. Right. Sometimes sense. you have to. I mean, we put in the considerations tab, um, look, if you're going to, if you've got changes in medication coming, consider redoing the FA because, uh, you know, the work by um, Valdivinos, uh, she, she shows like, you know, you might get changes in function with different psychoactives uh, as the, if someone's being titrated off medications or someone's going on medications. That could affect your results as well. So we have a risk reduction tab, ability tab, and a considerations tab because we did, that's just the tab we didn't know where to put it. <laughs> well, that's an, uh, seriously, such an amazing resource for practitioners, for researchers who are doing essays. Now you've talked a little bit about next steps in terms of, of validating it to see if it actually affects practice. So what are your next steps along those lines? Um, so, uh, we keep trying to hook in other practitioners. So if any listeners here want to be a part of the next steps, we definitely need, um, folks to be piloting the tool, um, either. And, and Neil and I and Stephanie have had a number, number of conversations with different, um, you know, clinicians in the field, but also, you know, academics who are, are training to see like, how could we best assess this tool? Hmm. Decision-making is a covert behavior. It's something that as behavior analysts, we kind of shy away from. It's a private event. It's something that we're like, oh, I can't measure it. I don't know how to, so how do we measure if we're gonna change it if we can't even see it? So that's something that's challenging to get um, measures on, on if people are deciding and how they're making that decision. So we're trying to design different measures based on some standard vignettes that people would decide whether to move forward with an FA. If not, what are the factors that would make them hesitant to it? And then present that same group with a risk assessment tool like ours to see, does it actually change decision-making behavior? Um, the challenge with doing anything that's you know a little bit translational like that where we're using a client vignette is that it's not it's it's not representative necessarily of what people are experiencing in the field you know I may have a client that I've known for three years and so I have other contextual variables that are part of my history with that mm -hmm. client that are going to affect whether or not I do the FA okay. and you can't really simulate that in a vignette um, and All then right. I think the other challenge too is that trying to decide who the participant population would be. I 
think it would be novices that we would, you know, try and validate this tool with. Um, but if we do get some experts in and we say, pretend you're a novice, is that going to be, are we going to be able to evoke those same private events that we would actually get with a novice? So um, those are challenges, but those are all things we're, I think, all excited to meet because, um, you know, we need to know if our decision-making tools are actually effective to change decisions. Otherwise, we've just put another tool out there that we have no idea what its effects on human behavior are. Right. So you're kind of looking at doing relatively controlled study. I mean, considering the, the, the setup of something like this, but also potentially having people pilot it, partnering with clinicians to see what it looks like in practice. Which yep. are both There's really- a couple... Yeah, there's a couple, we have some colleagues at some large um, residential facilities that are looking at um, potentially piloting it with their um, BCBAs um, on some of their case reviews. So um, it wouldn't necessarily be that they are in fact going to do an FA, but looking back at some historical data from clients and would this decision or would the tool have brought them to a different decision than what they ultimately came to? Wow. That's so cool. Really, really cool project. I know that you created an amazing resource for people to check out. The, the article is great. The resource is great. So I encourage the listeners to check both of those out. Is there anything else that you think listeners who are interested in this topic should check out? They should email us with ideas because we created in Excel as a way to show a proof of concept to show that it can be done but our ideal is like a web-based app or something where we can actually get crowdsourced information as the field grows there is a value to the community and their experiences that are never locked in one person and, and stephanie we, i like to say this tool is a horcrux of stephanie peterson because you know here's the thing you've got all these good harry potter there. uh reference for yeah for yeah, those, right? yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I should work I some people in. Um, but like, it's important that we retain some of these experts in the field because, you know, she's, she's a mentor out there to a select few students. But how do you get that like knowledge base and kind of that touch of that person hmm. to a growing field that needs that needs to be steered towards, you know, the golden standards that we've all adhered to and subscribe to uh, without like losing the reins on. I don't know, I feel exploding for, with demand because of, right. you know, the functional utility of behavior analysis in practice. So that's so, a nice drop for the journal. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Thank you for that. So that you'll, you'll, you'd like the listeners to email you. I can link to your email in the show notes so that people can, can get that and, and let you know what they think. Check out the article, check out the tool and, and let Neil and I'm not sure, maybe Becky, I'm not sure who. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, you can link us. my email as well. Yep. Okay. So yeah, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. Check out the stuff. It's a truly amazing resource. It's really innovative. And I think it's really going to help practitioners who are doing these types of assessments or maybe haven't done these assessments, but would like to. So Neil and Becky, thank you so much for giving us some of your time and, and being on the show today. Thank you for having us. Appreciate that. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bat papers that we should review. I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. 
Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal. Thank you to ABAI, who publishes Behavior Analysis and Practice and supports this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producer, Elizabeth Nervaez, and my production assistants, Jesse Perrin, Beyonce Ferrucci, and Jacqueline Wilson. Thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast.